thank you all for being here. Thank you, Reverend Dr. Christopher Carter. Christopher and I met in the ordination process. At, we were in RIM together, which is part of when you're going through the process, you go into continuing education and you're in small groups. And I had the fortune of being with Chris in our small group and have just learned so much from him over the years. Um, and I'm so in awe of his passion and the way he's able to multitask, not just between tasks, but between interests. Um, he's deeply knowledgeable and um, passionate about a variety of, of topics. Um, and tonight, what we're really going to focus on is one of his um primary study areas of study areas of activism which is the intersection of of faith and food so how can the our our food choices reflect the values that we hold as people of faith um Dr. Carter is an assistant professor at San University of San Diego. Uh, he is also the lead pastor of The Loft in Westwood, and he is the recent uh, author of a book that was just published called The Spirit of Soul Food, Race, Faith, and Food Justice. Um, and so we're so excited that you're here with us tonight, Christopher, and excited to dive in. So I'll just pass it over to you. Awesome. Thanks, Chelsea. It's a, a privilege to be here. Uh, Chelsea, um, has done an excellent job introducing and making me sound much more interesting than I probably am. Basically, I'm just very nerdy. And so I do, I do, I'm not going to deny that I know a lot of things, but it's mostly because I just like to read. <laughs> so that's all. <laughs> I have a book problem, my wife would say. Um, also, I may from time to time be uh, wiping my face with a towel because uh, I am in the garage because my wife is trying to put my son to sleep and I cannot be in the house while that is happening. Uh, otherwise, he'll hear me and he won't, you know, it's just... He's three. He's, these are the things you do. So this is, you know, COVID stuff. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and get started. I'll, well, I guess before I, I share the screen, I'll say a little bit. Um, so this presentation is kind of a takes excerpts and kind of ideas and concepts from the book, but also things that aren't really necessarily specifically in the book, in part because I wanted to make it more conversational towards the end, especially. And it's designed for us to think critically about now the intersection of faith and food, but also the, the ways in which our identities intersect in this as well. So gender and race play a pretty huge role. Without further ado, I'll get into that. Um, it'll probably be, I guess, because with only a few of us, I'll try to make the get it done around within 20 and 25 minutes. That'll leave plenty of time for Q&A. And I know, I know there's going to be Q&A. Uh, so <laughs> uh, if you have questions that you don't want to forget, feel free to type them into the chat. That way we can capture them. I don't, I won't stop because then it'll just get me distracted and will take way too long. But feel free to type them into the chat and I will make sure I get to them when we finish. Now with all the uh, particulars out of the way. Oh, yeah. I should say I'm associate professor now. I just got a uh, tenure. So that sounds pretty cool. I was like, oh, yeah, I am associate professor. When you get tenure, it's like, you know, it's almost like being, you know, I guess what we, we call it in as a you're a provisional elder than a full elder. So it's kind of like going through the same process probably equally as painful. I'm still not a full elder. So that tells you the 10 year things I decided to put myself through. So the first question I think we should ask ourselves with respect to food justice and faith, or really broadly speaking, food and faith is why, like, why should this even be of interest or why hasn't been this, why hasn't this topic been of interest? Really, I would say probably in the last maybe 60 or 70 years when we've really kind of shifted our food structure in America. Generally speaking, I would say that a lot of secular and religious organizations know that our food choices are having significant impact on human and ecological well-being. Um, but often we still continue to do business as normal. I think that one of the best examples I think of is the United Nations conference uh, uh, on like 
it's called cop 22 or 23 like basically it's when they have all these people get together that talk about ecology and what we need to do to save the planet greta thurnberg and a bunch of other young people are, are speaking at this and she <laughs> is amazing among other young folks because she kind of calls out the hypocrisy uh in the ways in which these these events happen in terms of how, how people get there what they're eating how they're doing all this like the carbon footprint of this food and i think to an extent this is difficult for us in developed countries because what we are requiring of ourselves if we take this seriously is a um shift a dramatic shift really in how we use resources and how we think about resources and the sharing of resources um so why like we we know that we are slowly cooking our planet <laughs> we know that um we have way more food insecurity than we've had um and yet again if you're part of a church a lot of churches still kind of eat the same way or prepare foods the same way or order foods in the same places. Three reasons why I think this happens is for one, I think there's a failure of imagination. Um, the idea of the beloved community, um, what I will call um, from a Methodist perspective, this notion of sanctification of becoming more Christ-like, right? Um, is seen as utopic. It's like, well, it's not something we can really do in this world. Um, and so the effort, right, isn't really there. Um, I also believe you have a broken theological anthropology. Now I'm going to talk a lot about this when we get to the religion piece. Um, and what I mean by theological anthropology is how we understand ourselves as human beings in relationship to both God, other human beings, and non-human nature, right? How do we interpret our relationship with the divine, with other folks we know to be human and with other life that lives around us, right? Uh, I suggest we've adopted a way of, of, of interpreting ourselves in relation to others that allows us to normalize, that has normalized exploitation of other bodies. And also we're really disconnected from the land. Um, I am <laughs> from a semi-rural community. Um, I'm much more of an outdoor person than I probably am able to be uh, for lots of reasons. I decided to stay in the city, which I can get to at the end of the presentation if it's relevant. Um, but also the ways in which race is constructed requires a detachment from the land, right? Now I'll say more about this in, in, when we get to the section on race, but the ways in which racial identity was constructed required a detachment from your ethnic identity, which is rooted in the, your place, French, English, German, all these other things, right? Had to be delinked from the land. And we're dealing with the consequences of that today. And so one thing I think we have to do in order to kind of recapture um, some parts of this, whether it be our imagination, our understanding of relationships, or the ways in which we connect to the land is to know our own story. Why does this matter to us? And for me, it's really two people, two figures, I think kind of represent uh, a portion of how I am begin thinking through some of these issues. The first um, is my grandfather, um, my, my maternal uh, grandfather uh, and grandmother, Robert and Yvonne Martin, um, had really important roles in raising me. My grandfather was a migrant like picker in the fields, and I would say it's from him that I began to at least appreciate non-human nature and to think critically about the ways in which farm workers are treated. Um, he would tell us stories growing up. Like we'd be, cause we went to, we drive to Mississippi. We have family unions in the summer. It's like the absolute worst time to like go to Mississippi. <laughs> it's like, Hey, we're gonna go to Mississippi in July. Uh, but that's when we always had the reunions. And so we would be down in Mississippi and Louisiana usually for about two to three weeks every summer for the most, from the time I was like seven to well, 16. Um, and I loved it quite honestly. It was so much fun. And when you're that young, the heat doesn't bother you that much. 
but he would tell stories on the drive down all the because we were passing all these plantations these fields and he would just have these stories about how he was treated where he worked and the ways in which he was exploited and i remember even as a kid thinking these stories almost sound like slavery like it doesn't sound like it sounds so bad it almost like it's like this is so different from where we live now and yet my grandfather is a very grateful person like he's always talking about how grateful he is for the day grateful to be alive um and grateful that he was able to survive now my paternal side is different um, my father is a quarter spanish his great his grandfather was spanish um and so they're white and so his grandfather married a the his grandfather's an overseer by the name of Joe. And he married a worker, one of the plantation workers' daughters. And that's how, you know, he be, they became ultimately intermarried and mixed, you know, and are labeled as ethnically black. My dad is, but his grandfather still, you know, has the old, or his, my, I guess my grandfather was still labeled as, um, I think they had mulatto on his death certificate because this is a still a term they used out in Louisiana. Um, and so what's interesting about this particular perspective is I have on one hand, the people who are working in the fields that were exploited and on the other, the people who were doing the exploitation and that kind of awareness has always helped and continues to help shape the way in which I do this work to try to have compassion for both parts of my own identity. Um, and both parts of, I think the complexities, I guess, of what it means to be human. And so that's a little bit about why I do this work. And that has influenced the ways in which I began to think theologically, um, politically, I should say, even about our current food system. And I call it a food pyramid scheme, essentially because, you know, a pyramid scheme this is the idea that you take from one person to give to another and you keep, you know, racking it up. So the person at the top ultimately um, is, you know, making all the profits and the people at the bottom are being exploited. Um, and so I feel like that's where our food system is more or less set up really to privilege the few at the expense of many. But I think it fits a broad pattern of American democracy, right? Um, as I write, right, with respect to ecological impact, industrial agriculture disproportionately harms Black, Indigenous, and poor people in the U.S. and Indigenous and poor people globally. Ultimately, whether it's clean water in Flint, um, land sovereignty in Standing Rock, or food injustice in Black communities, it's clear that environmental practices are always racialized, and racializing practices are always environmental, right? These two things are deeply like interrelated. Uh, and, and I think the sooner we understand that land and the ways in which we use land is always racialized, I think the sooner we can begin to address some strong systemic problems. So with respect to food insecurity, what I argue in my book and what I lay out the case for is that our food system is structurally racist, both domestically and globally. And what I mean by that just so we're clear, often people have really poor definitions of race, racism, especially. And so when I'm talking about racism, I want to be really clear what I'm saying. I'm talking about not people's intentions or people's feelings. I'm talking about actual impact. <laughs> and so by structural racism, I mean the unequal distribution of goods that can be traced along racial lines. So economic goods, unequal distribution, political goods, or ideological goods. Now, ideologies is where religion is at play. It's where those ideas are at play or where people's beliefs are at play. 
Um, these do, in fact, enforce economic and political policies. We see this with respect to the ways in which people are racialized and how it justifies, for instance, police interactions with black people or the fact that, you know, if you are incarcerated, you lose on economic opportunities. All these things are interlocking and interconnected. But want to be clear, I'm talking about structural racism. I'm really talking about these three things. And again, not people's feelings or intentions, but actually about impact. Right. I use the term food apartheid because it kind of recognizes the fact that this is structural, whereas a food desert is a desert and naturally occurring phenomenon. So apartheid is very clearly political. It talks about the ways in which the history of redlining, segregation and colonialism shape our food system. Those things are not natural, right? Like, so we need to be make sure we're using appropriate terms to describe what we're facing. Rural communities are suffering so much. With respect to rural communities, I think it's really important for us to understand that these are the places that actually produce most of our food, right? Where most of our food comes from. And yet these are the people who are most at risk for food insecurity, right? And particularly children. And that to me is just abhorrent, right? Like the people who grow our food literally can't afford to eat, right? And that I think is, is a part of their structure in terms of the exploitation of labor, which I'll talk about in a moment. Um, also, we should know that food security really is a woman issues. Like it's really an issue uh, that, that feminists and women should take really seriously because women are the foundation of the third world agricultural economy, even though they only receive a fraction of the, the like the supports. Um, in Africa, for instance, women constitute 50%, 50% of the population, yet they make up 75% of the workforce. As a whole, women produce more than half of the world's food and provide more than 80% of the food needs in food insecure households and regions, right? So talking about food insecurity and access, you really are talking about a women's issue. We have to also address the ways in which slaughterhouses and slaughterhouse workers are deeply evil institutions. Um, there's a racial hierarchy that's pre present in them. Um, places and, and plants like Smithfield and other uh, slaughterhouses have roughly between 90 and 100% turnover, right? Um, meaning that almost everybody that starts there doesn't work more than a year because it's just such a dangerous job, it's such a humanizing job, and it's so low wage. Um, there's articles that have pasted on the screen that you could look at that kind of um, explain this in a little more detail. We also just talk about that with COVID-19, we have further exploitation of labor, um, meaning that um, because of the emergency authorizations that President Trump signed, it allowed workers uh, to basically allowed it to be considered an essential service. And so these uh, corporations were able to say they, you know, made the political or marketing statement by saying, hey, we're going to give a lot of money to the workers um, through bonuses. But the only way they give the bonus was if you came to work like for, you know, four weeks straight or something like that. If you missed work, then you weren't eligible for the bonus. So a lot of people are coming to work with COVID. As a consequence, managers at this one plant in Waterloo, Iowa, started literally skipping going in down on the floor because they knew there was COVID there and people would get sick. And then on top of that, they started to create, they decided, one of them decided to make a gambling ring. And so they were actually gambling on who would catch COVID and who would get sick and who would die. Um, and so that just tells you the ways in which they see these lives as not having value, particularly because it's mostly immigrants and people of color that work in these places. And lastly, but importantly, um, it, it's mostly unknown that we have a suicide epidemic happening with our farmers um, in both America and in Europe. 
um, in less, less extent in Africa and probably equally in America as we see in uh, India and Sri Lanka. Um, so different places in South uh, Asia. Um, and basically what we have is farmers with this deep and profound desire to be able to feed people. That's, that's comes up against the ways in which the system um, requires such huge inputs to do to participate in the industrial agricultural system of chemical fertilizers that they have to sign contracts for that ultimately make the land difficult to even grow food. And so they get into this vicious cycle, right? Um, we also have exploitation in terms of lending and who's allowed or who isn't allowed to um, be able to access loans and things of that nature. Um, it is, I would encourage you to look at, to look at this article um, in The Guardian. Um, it's, it's quite telling in terms of I was thinking other thing I should be clear to say, this is a both sides of the aisle issue. Um, neither Republicans or Democrats really support farmers. They support corporations that grow food. They do not support farmers. And so you'll hear a lot of Republican rhetoric about supporting farmers. You hear Democratic rhetoric about supporting farmers. Um, but in truth, when it gets down to the actual needs of the people growing the food, those needs often are not met. So how did we get here, right? How did this happen? Um, what allows us to be able to participate theologically or, or, or what theological assumptions have normalized the ways in which we view bodies such that they can be exploited, right? What role has Christianity played in normalizing this exploitation? What I argue is that it's a, a ways in which we interpret the Imago days is broken. This is what I talk about broken theological anthropology. Since the onset of coloniality, so I'm really talking about the beginnings of colonialism, roughly 1500s, um, the word human has become a projection of the fantastic white hegemonic imagination, as Emily Towns calls it, basically rendering human virtually synonymous, synonymous with white men, right? Um, and, and, and this, again, shouldn't be surprising anything, by the way, people use language, people use the term guys to refer to all folks in a space. When people say men historically are really, even if they're trying to be plural, they're talking about, you know, men and women, quote unquote, but they use the word men. Um, and people think American, they think white. I mean, we just have to just kind of play this out and recognize is that the imagination that we have, what we have been taught to think about some of these terms um, really shapes how we view the world. And so we're talking about humans. <laughs> people tend to, the default is white. Thus, the anthropological problem that has limited development of an intersectional ecological ethic for Christians has been the often unconscious adoption of a way of being human that is filtered through the projection of the white imagination, right? So the way in which we're, we are taught to what it means to be human, even at its best, is filtered through the lens of whiteness. And the white imagination, since colonialism, has been premised on against the other. The creation of white required the creation of black, right? And again, these weren't things that white, that black people created, that people of color created. Like the idea of white was created by Europeans. And so given that, and the idea of white was created in concert with religion, particularly to make the argument that you can enslave these people who were not white and were not human. So decolonizing Western Christianity's assumptions about the human require us to view being human as a praxis, a process of learning and unlearning, applying and realizing our humanness in anti-oppressive ways. That way of thinking about what it means to be human, that way of thinking about um, our relationships to non-human nature and other humans is still present within our current anthropologies, even though 
all of us would say, well, slavery is crazy. Patriarchy is crazy. Like all we would agree with all those things, but the foundations of our understanding of what it means to be human are still present. And so we have to go back and really unearth to say, well, well, what led us to get here? And how might we really reshape the foundations of the way of thinking theologically so that our, well, we construct something new that can address those fundamental problems. This happened in part due to kind of the legacies of colonialism that we're still living with. Um, in this amazing book, History of the World, Seven Cheap Things, this, there's a number of books I can recommend, but this is one that I put on the slide for a reason because it's easier to read. Um, they talk about the ways in which cl- colonialism essentially enabled us to view certain things as having to, to cheapen it for it to say it has little value, right? So again, cheapening is a strategy, a practice of violence that mobilizes all kinds of work with as little compensation as possible. This is how you get the ideas of like, you know, sweatshops and factories that really can exploit people. This allowed us to think about the ways in which nature can be cheapened, right? Um, first, we have to draw this divide between us and nature, which I'm going to talk about in the next slide. But then once we do that, nature essentially can be seen as a means to an end rather than an end in and of itself. It allows us as Christians to read the creation narratives and read them fundamentally differently than we've ever read prior to colonialism. Because pre-colonialism, even in a predominantly agri- agricultural society, people read those narratives and understood that they were about how we should interact with each other and nature you know, the second creation narrative is deeply agricultural, right? So you can't read this idea that we're supposed to subdue the earth without also reading number sec- the second one and seeing what happens when your process of subduing goes haywire, right? <laughs> like, and so these things are always read together. However, after colonialism, people start pulling things out, obviously, to, to make their own particular kind of arg- argument of saying, you know, manifest destiny. We're supposed to control nature, use nature for our... Uh, our own, our own purposes. Um, and so it's important that we create that for them, it was important to create these boundaries that policed um, humans in nature. Um, and what we see here is when we do that, we create those boundaries and you have distinct versions of nature. Again, you're allowed to exploit it. So whether it be um, clear cutting for building paper, whether it be um, pesticides that we use on food that we don't harm land, whether it be mining and the runoff from mines that we see here, or one of the things I'm going to talk about, you know, I'm going to make an argument that's going to critique our modern food system, particularly based on animal agriculture. And, and the reason it is insane to me that I have to even make this argument is that when I talk to indigenous folks or if you travel, you know, up in the, um, you know, in the Montana, like in the Plains region, and you see how we had a natural, you know, uh, we had an animal here, bison in America that was grazing, that was low impact, you know, that basically a lot of people to survive. And, and the idea was for Europeans was to essentially kill all the bison as a way to get rid of the indigenous people as a part of indigenous genocide. They almost slaughtered these animals that would serve as a, a much more sustainable way of consuming meat, right, than we actually have today. And so, again, all these things are wrapped up in power over others, right? And again, this short-term thing that compromises long-term flourishing. To be clear, the cheapening of non-human life allowed us to cheapen human lives that were essentially closer to the scale for these people as animals, right? And so Christian theology was used and weaponized to create a hierarchy, right, of certain humans having more value as others, of white performativity being the value from which everything is going to be compared to. 
And so what we have here, well, I'll just read this. It's no coincidence that colonialism and chattel slavery emerged during a period when European Christian men were able to claim that Africans and indigenous Americans were people evil and savage because they were either not Christian or too close to nature and like animals and therefore distant from God. This cartoon here is kind of a funny example of the ways in which this kind of thinking was portrayed. So you have, you know, the white students in the back, um, you have these other colony, colonies, so you have the Philippines, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and Cuba being lectured by Uncle Sam on how to behave. The indigenous person in the corner here with the book upside down, the Chinese person outside, and the Black person isn't even allowed to be a, a student. Um, and so this kind of thinking really is what was present. Like, okay, we're going to teach you how to be the kind of person you're supposed to be. Now, liberation theologians have critiqued this way of thinking, right? Feminist theologians have critiqued this way of thinking. You know, they have critiqued that racism present. They have critiqued the racism present in anthropologies. Um, but I would argue they haven't sufficiently decolonized our term of the, the notion of the human. Now, white people and women have argued like we are human too, right? Like, you know, we are human. That's what we're like. We're human just like you. Um, so we treat us like humans. But the problem that I want to argue is that the way of being human to say we're being we're, we're a human just like you doesn't do anything to construct to deconstruct the racism, the sexism and the ecological effectivist thinking that normalizes oppression. Right. So we don't want we shouldn't want to be humans like the oppressor. Like that's a fundamentally flawed way of being human. And I think that's what we've been kind of missing out on when we think about arguing for our own humanity It's within the context and framework of what it means to be human. This is what leads to kind of this, what I would call the animalization of people of color. And I had, a, I've been, I was tinkering with this slide because I had a lot of different things on this slide before. I've had quotes from politicians um, where they use a language about animals and they're always referring to black people. But I thought these images actually capture what I'm thinking of. And I'm going to try something a little different in just a second. Um, so to be clear, when someone disparages a group of human beings as animals or animalistic, they do not mean that the group of people fall outside the scientific category of homo sapiens. Rather, they are stating that these human beings do not look, live, worship, or reason normally, where normal is understood as Eurocentric white norms. In other words, when one does not act white or one behaves in ways that challenge white dominance, they are dehumanized and seen as an animal. So this picture on the left is from a Black Lives Matter protest when Alton Sterling was uh, murdered in Baton Rouge. I happened to be down in Baton Rouge during that time. It was some research. It was crazy. Um, and the picture on the right is in Lansing, Michigan. I'm from Michigan. This boy went to school at Michigan State, so we lived in Lansing for five years. And um, these people are protesting, wearing, having to wear a mask. Um, that's it. Not anybody getting shot. Not anybody dying. They're protesting to wear a mask. Um, and look at how they're able to behave and not be arrested. And look, look at the technical gear that someone has to arrest a just woman standing there, right? That poses clearly no threat. And that should help you understand the way in which they see this person, what comes up in someone who think that someone is a threat. The other thing I wanted to show, and again, this is what, I've not done this before, but I, I couldn't find a way to easily put this on a slide, but I feel like I can show this and, I've, and I'm hoping you guys can see this screen as I'm showing this. So I thought this article that CNN had actually kind of captures, because it kind of shows what one looks like versus another, um, versus the way in which we engage, how police engage black and brown bodies. So on June 2nd of 2020, when there was a protest over the death of George Floyd, this right here, is how the National Guard 
were stationed, right? Whereas we saw what happened on January 6, 2021, and the National Guard wasn't called in and no one was there, and BC wasn't allowed to happen, right? We see here um, the ways in which we have a Black Lives Matter protest and how they are confronted, right? Again, January 6, 2021, people taking selfies with police. This is um, right outside the Rose Garden before President Trump made his remarks January 1st um, and how the dispersed people with tear gas, right? Again, this is people running inside the Capitol. I feel like it's pretty obvious, right? The ways in which we can look at that as a primary example of what it means to view some people as human beings and others as less than human and the consequences of that kind of logic in terms of even our ability to exercise First Amendment rights. So white supremacy as such that we see demonstrated in that video creates a hierarchy based on racist skin color and equates the idealized human with whiteness. And so what I want to argue here is that because of this, that the term animal, right, has been, is a racialized term, right? It's a racialized term. Like the modern delineation of what it means to be a human and what it means to be an animal was constructed along racial lines because humans had to be, certain humans had to be dehumanized to justify their exploitation, right? In this sense, the animal is the anchor of the system of white supremacy. And this isn't really new if you ask people of color. Like, we've heard the ways in which, and know the ways in which we've been animalized, and people talk about us as animals or use animal language, right, to address us. Franz Fanon talks about this, Wretched Earth, an amazing uh, book that he wrote before he passed away. I want to be clear, I'm not suggesting that the exploitation is the same, right? What I am arguing is that exploitation of non-human animals normalizes a colonial theological anthropology. Allowing animals to be exploited normalizes the theological anthropology that ultimately justifies anti-Black violence, anti-Black oppression, right? Because when you say these certain people can be exploited and the ways in which race is constructed because Black people aren't really seen as full human beings within this current construct, right? Animal exploitation is what allows humans to be exploited logically within this structure and again like i said this shouldn't be surprising like these are images some from some of my book um where i really talk about how within our conscience like animals and race is deeply tied particularly as it relates to chicken this image right here this reads two souls but a single thought basically the idea is that these black men can't control their desires when they see chicken they just can't control themselves and they just you know lose everything chasing chicken this image talks about a black savage um, saying, you know, I'm having chicken for breakfast. It's a euphemism for white women. Not only does this talk about um, justification for policing black male bodies for the protection of white women, and also frames white women as, you know, persistent and consistent victims um, that need protection. And we see this even what's come up with the death of Emmett Till lately in the ways in which this has always, always hurt black men and black people. Again, Black women are wrapped up in this as well with respect to the mammy imagery and the ways in which mammies are taught to be taken or thought to be good for cooking and taking care of kids. This is among the craziest places that you probably ever heard of called the Coon Chicken Inn that existed for around 20 years. The idea was that um, black men really knew about how and how to cook chicken. And so if they had a restaurant with images like this on the menu and, and restaurants actually had black caricatures around them, people would come to it and think that this was good. Um, that they would find, you know, good food there. 
I'm just arguing ultimately that Americans are implicitly taught and socialized to accept this structure of nature that places human as the pinnacle. Racial formation asserts the human is understood to be white. Patriarchy ensures that he's male. Heterosexism and ableism ensure that he is straight and idealized. And so when we try to be full human beings within this flawed vision of a human, we're really striving towards a way of being in the world that replicates this kind of oppressive hierarchical model. And so we have to develop a new way of understanding what it means to be human. Um, otherwise, we're at risk of replicating the kind of structure that we want to ultimately tear down. And so what does that look like? I argue for what I call decolonizing the Imago Dei um, through these three practices of self-love, solidarity, and holistic interdependence. I build from the Bible, and I, I talk about the weight of those narratives. Um, for people of color, I talk about self-love being really crucial for us to heal some of our internalized racism and, and uh, heal from the animalization that our people have had to deal with. Um, and loving ourselves is crucial for this. Seeing ourselves as people worthy of love is crucial because we've been told we are not. Solidarity also requires us to foster interdependent relationships with people who would otherwise be outcasts, right? This is modeling, you know, this version of Jesus that we see it's a first century Palestinian Jew, um, not modeling, right, this kind of white European-centric Jesus, Um it recognizes also that solidarity needs to extend to non-human nature as well, especially when the harm is unnecessary for our survival, because the logic of exploitation, right, of non-human nature ultimately leads to the logic of exploitation for people of color. This is different for white people, right? For your American Christian, self-love requires, honestly, I would say some self-emptying, really a decentering of the self, right? A moving away from a centering of one's thoughts to actually recentering of the thoughts of people of color. Um, to be able to discover who you are outside of the lens of whiteness, right? Solidarity requires learning about the history of the you know, communities that has been exploited. Um, this, at its best, this leads to renewal and reconciliation of relationships between white people and those whom they or the ancestors have harmed. Reconciliation is key here, right? Like this takes time and it's about relationships, right? And it requires remembering and knowing and learning about what has happened and what's taken place. It's not saying that you're at fault, but it's recognizing that we have a certain kind of responsibility to make amends. This isn't easy. And some of you may be like, oh, I feel like I'm generalizing about whiteness or all those kinds of things. I talk a lot about this in the book. And I talk a lot about the, what I ask people to do in the contemplative turn is to, to turn inward, to say, okay, what's going on within me that makes me feel this way rather than blaming others for how you feel um, really attend to your own feelings um, and understand what's going on and actually attend them with a sense of compassion. Compassion really animates the entirety of the book. And I don't really talk about it too much in this, this lecture, but I start writing about compassion and I end writing about compassion because this is difficult. So I don't want to pretend that this is something that's easy when you're dealing with the kind of trauma that we're all dealing with respect to race. Holistic interdependence really is recognizing that we are inter interdependent creatures. Um, this isn't a kind of egalitarian way of thinking, but it does recognize that nature is a part of our community, right? So it can't be exploited. We should not exploit because we don't want to explain anybody in our community. So non-human nature is a part of our community, right? And this is coming through the lens of Black and Indigenous spiritualities when I make this construction. So this is the good stuff in wrapping up. But what does this look like in practice and application? Um, I talk about these three theological principles that I call soulful eating, justice food for food workers, and caring for the earth. Um, this kind of is the way I decided to live out those principles of that theological anthropology that I described earlier. So for me, 
soul food eating is about being reflective on the agricultural wisdom of my ancestors and trying to develop a new spirituality of eating. In its ideal form, soul food eating as Christians to reduce the consumption of animal products. I call this black veganism and I describe it in more detail in my book because it's what I call an agent-specific and context-specific veganism. So that just means like I recognize that everybody can be vegan because I grew up really poor and it wasn't possible for me. But the eating of animal products, participating in industrial agriculture, especially, but particularly industrial animal agriculture, it so disproportionately harms people of color. Like it is like targeted. These places are in communities of color. The people that work there are in communities of color. The environmental consequences harm communities of color. Like it is hyper, hyper focused on marginalizing and penalizing black and brown bodies. And so as best as you can, you need to opt out of this system if you want to actually take seriously the exploitation that black and brown people deal with, right? That's just the reality of the situation. Um, not to mention the fact that you're trying to call attention to the animalization of, of uh, BIPOC folks to make sure that our construction of the human doesn't also uh, allow for the exploitation of uh, other life. Um, and so in this sense, this is about being in solidarity with folks, um, particularly people of color, um, particularly poor people and those in rural communities. And with respect to the practice, I talk so much about cooking. Each chapter in the book actually ends with a recipe. I talk about reclaiming the kitchen as sacred space. So much of so many of us have trauma because of modernism and we talk about food and cooking is, has been taught to us to feel like a chore, something we shouldn't have to do. And, and what I realized is that, and it's not that I, you know, I'm fortunate that I have time to cook almost every day, but even I don't always have time to cook. <laughs> I love to cook and I don't always have time. And so trying to set aside time, trying to make it a practice where I include my son is something I do pretty much all the time. He loves to cook. He knows I'm starting to cook. He gets his stool. He comes in there. Um, and I try to tell him stories about his grand, his great grandmother. He doesn't get ever got a chance to meet his grandfather, his great grandfather. He only got a chance to meet a couple of times. My family lives far away. And so I just, we tell stories. Isaiah knows so much about his ancestry. Um, through these stories already. Uh, and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And, and, and for me, that's, I really believe how we begin to um, like be reconnected, not only to the land, but to the food and can make it such that we are recreating these recipes that tell the stories of our families, right? Like I eat things that remind me that taste like home, even if they're different because I don't eat animal products anymore, right? But it still allows me to share those stories. And that for me is, is, is crucial because there's wisdom. There's wisdom in those stories. Justice for food workers, you know, again, buying fair trade, buying local, use, supporting community-supported ag agriculture, going to a co-op, um, joining, if you, if you are maybe more into politics, you don't like necessarily cooking, joining a food policy council. Like I'm actually doing some work with the LA food policy council because I'm moving up there. I've already connected with them. Um, getting involved in school food programs. There's so many ways we can participate like in this system because it's so big. You just have to find the one that feels right and works for you. One thing I want to invite you to do if you uh, attend a religious organization or you attend a church is like, you know, really try to encourage them to begin to think theologically about food, right? And so one thing we might want to do is rather than arguing about like, should they be vegetarian or vegan? What does that look like? Is really try to eliminate the barriers that make it harder for people to access good food so they can actually have food sovereignty. So, you know, 
that means working on policies or or or, or picketing or, or making sure that grocery stores can abandon communities right advocate for raising the minimum wage so people actually could afford food that's so important right now help create food sovereign spaces so we can control our food economy and i'll talk more about that in a moment um, my friend Heber Brown here in this picture in the bottom right, uh, the Black Church Food Security Network does amazing work along those lines um, and really has tried to make a relationship with uh, uh, black and brown farmers out in the Maryland, Baltimore, greater area um, and doing some amazing work there. And this kind of leads to caring for the earth. Um, Ultimately, this recognizes the ways in which we need to have better relations with the land. And I argue that we need to be thinking about how we use our land. How might we use church land as farmland, right? This is something that Heber does or something that he's actually, what he's been able to do is connect farmers that are farmers of color. And two days a week, they bring a bunch of food. Like he drives around or has hired people to pick up food to bring to this church um, so people can buy basically like a, you know, a farmer's market at the church. But what this does, it eliminates the middleman, right, of the farmer's market because they're not trying to make any money. They're just trying to make sure the drivers are well paid, the farmers get paid, the church just needs to break even, right? So this reduces food costs so people in this community actually have food to eat. Other communities are actually, or other churches are actually growing food on site. They're not trying to have beautiful lawns and grass, right? They're actually saying, what can we actually provide for our community? So this isn't just like a community garden. This is like actual farming. Some of them are doing um, like, uh, you know, like not farming, growing food to feed the community, but farming to actually sell crops, right? That can be um, sold to market, right? At creating jobs and in, in, in so doing. And so like, there are so many ways for us to think about how we could best use our land um, that I think we have to begin to again use our imagination. There's an article, I thought I had a link on here, but I didn't put it on here. I thought I updated this. Um, there's an article that I'll put in the chat called Using Church Land as Farmland by I can't remember the name of it, but I'll find it. They're really details a lot of churches are doing. And this is happening more in the Midwest, so I'm connected with a lot of folks who are doing this. Uh, Methodist Theological School in Ohio and their Seminary Hill Farm is doing some really cool work. Princeton is on the path. Wake Forest School of Divinity is doing some really cool stuff now, too. I'm excited to be working with them. Um, definitely have any open for questions if you guys have any. And I'll put that link in the chat for that article I was talking about. I don't have a question, but have uh, Chris, are you familiar with... Um spring forest in north carolina mm. that's another it's uh, elaine heath she used to be the divinity um she was the dean at duke okay and she ended up starting this uh, it's a collaborative effort but the whole it just when you were giving examples it reminded me of this organization spring forest and they are focused on creating home and farm um and just uh, it, it also it's it's pre it's preparing the soil. Um, the the work is interesting, and um, a lot of her work focuses on trauma, um, not just uh, individuals who have been exploited from a racial perspective, but also in other intersections, whether it's physical abuse, mental abuse, um, it, all kinds of. But it, it just it just reminded me just when you gave that one example, I thought, oh, Spring Forest. I wonder if he's heard of that. Yeah, no, I just went to their website um, and, you know, it looks great. I think, um, again, like our trauma that I have to like, basically, even though you probably felt like, wow, that's a lot on race. That's like the, the least I could give to make sure that the presentation was coherent. <laughs> like, and, and trauma is a huge part of how we talk about how we're how we're racialized, yep. and how we're gendered and how this is structured and how it just really um, stays in our bodies. 
right? Yeah. It literally stays in our bodies. Yeah. And so, and for me, this is why compassion is so important. Like mm-hmm. compassion for me is like, it is the foundation of probably my spirituality in many ways. I would say it, it kind of has informed my food practice for me to even think about what it means to, for me to practice veganism, but in reality, um, to try to eat in a way that I think does, you know, no harm. And that's very Wesleyan, right? It's very, very Wesleyan, but it's like this idea of, you know, doing no harm for me. It resonates uh, in, in deep and profound ways. United Methodist Women, now called United Women in Faith, we uh, are boycotting Wendy's because uh, because they're the only fair, uh, they're the only uh, fast food uh, chain that has not joined the the fair, uh, fair fair food agreement. They haven't signed it all this time, and uh, the it, the the Native Americans and the Immokalee tribe down in Florida uh, are still, you know, the, talk about food justice and you know and the the things that have gone on and trying to collect, uh, trying to get tomatoes and stuff. And so I think that's one way uh, United Methodist Women is drawing attention to this by uh, advertising a, a boycott of Wendy's. So it's something. I, I agree. I agree. And I think, I mean, if whether you're talking about the Immokalee farmers in Florida, which are doing some amazing organizing, or just the legacy of Cesar Chavez, and the workers and the work that happened in California, mm-hmm. like this is you're talking about the roots of, of of farm worker activism, really, in both in Florida and in California, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, not time to talk about it, but to the book, Cesar Chavez was deeply religious. I mean, he was deeply, deeply Catholic. Like his fasting was for religious reasons. And so, I mean, the interconnections for me with faith and food and spirituality are profound. Um, and I think it's it's uh you know it's only when we begin to pay attention. I think to be able to understand again why we've allowed ourselves to not talk about food and food injustice in religious communities and again and thank you for the for the comment and it isn't that this doesn't have to be you don't have to have a question you can just have a comment or a thought or whatever and that's totally fine too well i have uh, you were talking earlier you referenced uh, the food deserts to being it seemed like you were making them be just in the rural areas and where I always understood a food desert to be was in more of the urban areas. And, you know, so I just remember, you know, when we were growing up, you know, like there were no grocery stores where you can get good produce, you know? And I remember in my grandmother's neighborhood, we literally had a little corner store, you know, that I don't ever remember seeing anything fresh, no fresh produce or anything. But, you know, the answer to that was grow your own, you know? So we all had farms, not farms, but backyard. Gardens. Yep. Lot. Yeah. And we also had our church, you know, had a lot that they were able to have a farm on to where people could come and get food if they needed it, you know, um, fresh produce and stuff but that was only in the summer because it was in ohio so (laughs) you couldn't really grow a lot in the winter but you know you learned all that stuff so yeah eleanor what city in ohio cleveland cleveland okay now so um i'm more familiar with that people that live in columbus um but i have a lot of family in columbus too yeah (laughs) i am again being in michigan you know same thing similar climate um but yeah when you talk about food deserts again i tend to use the term food apartheid because i think it's more specific but it is interestingly from a port proportional it impacts both that's what i should start saying it impacts both rural and urban right. spaces from yeah. a numbers perspective like in terms of percentage wise 
rural communities are actually more heavily impacted. Urban communities get a lot of publicity, um, which is so fascinating because rural communities are predominantly, in these spaces are predominantly white. And I just, there's a lot of politics that are happening the way media represents these things. Um, But both spaces are suffering um, and just suffering differently. Whereas there may be, they may have access to some food in rural communities that the wages are so low they can't afford it and in an urban community because the history of redlining and segregation where they won't like you said they won't literally have anything within walking distance or what they do have isn't fresh it really i think just speaks to the way in which we privilege good food for you know middle and upper class people you know and i think that's really what we're at and you still see this today when you look at whole foods commercials or these kinds of ways in which we even advertise food like who's in those commercials who are they marketing to who are fast food commercials marketing to I mean, you just look at it, you could see it's like right in front of our face. Um, and it, um, I like to call, I, I like to use the term evil to describe these things because I just feel like it's a deeply theological term. And I think it's accurate um, of what we're doing um, to people in this country. So then you being vegan, you know, you are saying that eating animals is doing harm to the body and to the animal, I'm a guessing. Yeah, I would say my veganism is actually mostly rooted in the impact. I'm vegan for the people. I, I like animals. I see you have a cat right there. Like my wife's a veterinarian. I'm a, huge, <laughs> I, I'm a huge fan of animals. Um, but the primary argument for the way I talk about reducing animal consumption or being vegan or vegetarian is because the fact those, those places where slaughterhouses are just cause so much harm to those communities. Like the people who work in those places are exploited. The people who live around those places and deal with environmental exploitation to the degree that it is, I believe we we are being complicit in structures we know that are causing harm. Um, so it's more to do with the people who are being exploited, even, even, even though the animals are being clear, but the people, I have a hard time... Um, that's where I think we have the strongest argument to really opt out of this. And so some people have asked me, oh, is it okay if we purchase animals or, or buy animal products in places where those people aren't being exploited and doing that? I would argue that's fine. If that's what you want to do and you can afford to do it or you do your, like I grew up with a grandfather who hunted because we lived in Michigan. I tell everybody literally the first day of bow season, I don't know if this is your experience, Eleanor, like we didn't have school. Like the first day of bow hunting season, my school was closed because everybody was hunting, including yeah. the black people. You know, so <laughs> and so so that's so I so to me that's that's different than the kinds of exploitation you see in these places. I have a football player from Smithfield, North Carolina, who who told me about what's happened because his parents worked for the factory before they were able to get out. It's just it's really, really bad. And it's not talked about because we're not able to really see what happens in those places. So so that's kind of my argument that that hopefully clarifies it. I know I was trying to go a little bit fast towards the end, so Thank you for giving me a chance to explain it a little bit in greater detail. I wonder, um, as we close our time together, what do you see as as the future? Do you see, I mean, there there has been a lot of attention around food and, and soil and there's documentaries that are coming out. Like, what do you see the projection of this? Like, what is your your hope or, or is there hope? I think my, no, I do have hope. Uh, my ideal, like what I want to start doing now that the book is done, I'm doing all these book talks and doing tours and stuff like that really is to promote two things, both for people who are farming regenerative agriculture as a way to opt out of our current um, process of growing food because it just, we're harming the planet and causing unprecedented climate change that I don't know we're going to be able to fix. But for churches, it really is for us to 
either begin to grow food or become food hubs, to ask ourselves, how can we participate in the feeding of our community? Because food, because climate change is happening so fast, food insecurity is going to be a huge, huge issue for us to think really, like right down the road from where you are at that church, there is the, the Jewish, I can't think of the name of it right That's now. Rich. Yeah, but I have my students go tour there every year um, to, to connect with them, to understand how religions can be involved in this. Like there's, like we have to think as people of faith, prepare for what i believe is what we're causing what's happening on a planet so okay how can we i think what the model with the black church food security network is great how can we partner with farmers so they're making money so they're not as stressed out and committing suicide right how can we help those in local community know that they can come and get low they like more cost efficient like healthy foods right how can we be that hub even if you can't grow food because not everybody's a farmer i get that right not everybody's a cook i get that like but it, we should be able to be a hub for these things. And so that's what I would, that's what I want to have happen. For me personally, I know growing food is something I'm okay at, but I'm really good at cooking. And so my plan in the next, I'm doing another cooking demonstration at University of California, Irvine in the fall. And, um, and to talk to people about that in terms of how to like, you know, I, I write a lot about soul food and how to veganize it and make it taste like, you know, like it was when we grew up. And so those kinds of things, like what talents do we have that we could actually use and, and, and use well? That's kind of my, my hope is that churches, that we use the land and resources we have as a way to serve the community rather than thinking about how we can make money. Not that we don't need to make money because we need to be able to stay open. And I, you know, we all need to get paid, you know, if those of us that work in churches, but I think we can really subvert a lot of this food system if we're very intentional about it. Well, thank you. I think you've brought to light so many things that we just like it's the water we're swimming in. And so to, to think and open our eyes, who's in those commercials, you know, where does this come from? Why are we like all of those questions that just to kind of start deconstructing what we think is normal. um, Those questions are really helpful uh, because you don't know what you don't know. And you, you can't see what you can't see until someone starts kind of asking the questions with compassion. Right. And so um, that's such an important piece. I just dropped in the chat just a flyer for the book if any of you are interested in, in purchasing it. It has a discount code on it if you want to if you purchase it from the publisher. Um, it's a little bit cheaper than getting it from Amazon. It's a pretty good book. I've been able to get some Great. some pretty positive publicity on it. So um, if you're interested in, in kind of a more well like more broader argument, thank you all for your, your engagement and your questions. Well, thank you so much, Christopher. And hopefully we will connect soon, but blessings in your, in your move and your work um, and, and all that you're doing. I know you have lots on your plate, but lots of exciting things. So, so thank you. 